Hello, and welcome to episode 102 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Thursday, October 27th, 2022. A big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? Great. It's like end of October? Apparently, yeah. Uh, you said the 27th and I think, where did October go? I know. I, my brain is still kind of around the 15th. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Who knows? But we're having lovely fall weather. We are. And I think it's also because we don't have kids who are completely feral about Halloween anymore. This is true. So it's easy to let time slip. (laughs) Yep. This is true. Although I've been watching all like the Halloween food things come across my social media, which are very intriguing. And I think, well, that would be fun to make. And then I think, no, that's not going to happen. And also, should we talk about the Halloween episode on the uh, Great British Bake Off? Because like, what? Although I have to say, I was really proud of the guy who made the matcha fingers. Yes. (laughs) Those creepy finger-shaped cookies with the almond sliver fingernail. Yeah. I hate stuff like that. The creepy side of stuff like that. It was a very, I guess it was a much more British Halloween. interpretation of Halloween because when Paul Hollywood was like, when you think of Halloween, you think of apples. And I thought, no, no, you don't. <laughs> think of Snickers bars, but thank you, Paul Hollywood. And maybe Pumpkin, but yeah, that was very interesting. I don't want to spoiler anything, but can we, can we talk about the s'mores? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, at this point. By the time this comes out, it will have been a month, two, two weeks yeah. or so. And so, it's yeah. on you, people, if you haven't like tuned in you can to skip Great ahead. British Baking Show. So the the blind challenge or whatever, the one in the middle. The technical. Sure. <laughs> I'm fluent in Great British Baking Show, but Clearly. still. So they had to make s'mores. <laughs> Which is not a Halloween thing. No, it's a, it's summer a summertime thing. Here. These people. And... I don't know how you make a s'mores, but I definitely buy all of this stuff. Yes. And I make a lot of things from scratch. I would never make my own digestive biscuits. I mean, to be fair, I feel like they did this with a Twix bar a couple seasons ago and everyone and they couldn't say the name because it's a trademark name and but they were making whatever they were making and as i'm watching it i'm thinking isn't this just a twix bar like they made the cookie they had to make the caramel you know the whole thing so this was kind of the same idea where they're taking something that's clearly not meant to be made you just go to the store and buy it but i think that twix is like a I stole it from the Australian, the Tim Tams or whatever. Something. They're like I'm a sure there's a British Twix. version. Yeah. yeah, there's a British version. The whole um, thing was just like, no. But I have to say, this is not Halloween-ish at all to mm-hmm. me, but we once made s'mores with Ritz crackers instead of graham crackers. Oh. And I have to say, it leveled it up. I could see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The salty. Yes. Yeah. Dark chocolate is yeah. also an excellent swap. Mm. I'm not a huge marshmallow fan, so... I've tried it with the fancy marshmallows, and I don't think it adds anything. I don't think they're melty enough. I want, like, half the amount of marshmallow. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I could see that. And that was the other funny thing when Paul Hollywood was talking about, like, ratio and texture. It is so personal. (laughs) That's true. And also the blowtorch. Oh, my gosh. What are you people doing? I think the British have just adopted Halloween because it gives them five days of partying and ending with bonfire <laughs> night. Like that's a bar. That's a good idea. That is fun. We should. We should. Yeah, we should adopt bonfire night. I mean, <laughs> it wouldn't really make any sense, but we could pretend. Sounds good. Yep. All right. Well, all of this fall weather is nice and chilly. Do you have any knitting to talk about? <laughs> I do. And I'll talk about that in On the Needles. And then we'll talk about On the Easel, On the Table, and On the Nightstand. On the Needles. I have so many projects going. And then I had kind of a busy week. And I went away for the weekend where I did no knitting and no reading or very little reading. So I'm not as far advanced on any one project. So it's kind of all the same things that I was talking about last time which is fine. And I almost feel yesterday I had a moment where I had three projects and I love them all and I want to work on them all, but I cannot actually, since I'm not an octopus, work on them all at the same time. So I was looking at them 
trying to decide what to work on and I couldn't decide. So I just read, read a book, which is kind of weird. Wow. It's a little frustrating right now. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to work through them and I don't know what's going to happen. Anyway, so the first one I've been working on is the Quartzonite Socks by Yvette Noel in my lemonade shop, Simple Sock in frickin' bats, which is my Halloween project. So I have, I did kind of decide that since it is, oh look, October 27th, I should maybe work on the Halloween socks so that they might be ready for Halloween. Theoretically, if that's all I worked on, I could get them done in time, I think. We'll see if it happens. So I did make some good progress yesterday. This is the, it's not a striping yarn, it's variegated, but it's a big swath of magenta and then some variegated black and hot pink and light pink and some slime green. And it just turns out delightful and way brighter than anything I would wear on the rest of my body. But as socks, it's going to be fantastic. And the pattern is a geometric lace pattern. It's doing exactly what I wanted it to do, which is to break up the pooling that the yarn was doing on the cuff. And it's just wacky and <laughs> delightful. And I love it. And I did put the ghost stitch markers to use because there are three pattern repeats. I'm doing it magic loop. So each needle, there's two needles, three pattern repeats. So I need to use my little ghosties to divide up so I, I know where my pattern repeats start and stop. And it's been really good. And I've more or less got the pattern memorized. I can pull it up and just look at it and go, oh yeah, just to make sure I'm doing it right. But it's, uh, it's just great. And I, I did flip the pattern. It was supposed to be toe up and I'm doing it cuff down just because I like doing that better. So I'm more or less applying the the pattern, the the decorative stitch pattern to a basic cuff down sock, which seems to be working just fine. And I'm, I just started the gusset on the first one, but it goes pretty quickly because the pattern, I think it's 10 rows, something like that. It's a, it's a nice manageable number where you can, you can work your way through it and feel like you're making progress. And there's two separate parts. So like five and five, so you could just do five rows and feel like you're making progress. You can do the whole 10 rows if you're feeling fancy. And that way you just keep going. And it's really wonderful. I'll have to show it to you because the patterning is just and I love the way the yarn was, is turning out. Yeah. yeah, I love how it was starting to knit up. So I'm excited to see the progress. Yes. And then I have done a little bit of work on my Easy Stripes blanket from Joan of Dark. And that's for boy one who is away at college. It'll be his Christmas present, hopefully. And that is in Nitpicks Bravo Worsted in Current and Dove Heather, which is a burgundy and a very, very pale gray. And then a couple of extra stripes in Karen Simply Soft in Bone, which in my head is actually a very pale gold. And it just worked corner to corner and there's stripes and one color of the stripes gets bigger and bigger and then they'll swap. So it's a little bit, you know, a little, little excitement in that but basically it's just lots and lots of knitting it ends up garter stitch so it'll be nice and squishy and yeah i don't know where i am i think i'm maybe a quarter of the way through but you know that means i'm still still increasing for a while so it'll 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 take a bit i need to at some point i'll probably have to focus on that but i am not yet at that point so it's just you need a good I... tv series for <laughs> I do, or yeah, I could probably do it while reading. Cause really? Yeah, because it's just knitting. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that. That's my superpower. I guess. I mean, there's a little bit of paying attention because you have to count how many rows and when to change the colors and various things, but mostly it's just lots and lots of straight knitting. So that will work. And then I have also made some progress on my tea pullover by Hohi Locatelli. And that yarn is Machete Shop Dirty DK in the colorway Eucalyptus, which is mostly sagey green, but lots of blue blobs, speckles. It's probably a better word for that because Eucalyptus. And it's lovely and I love it. Um, this is the one that is the, it's about the process because it you knit the sweater in two halves and then we're going to weave them together. You knit the, the left, left half. half. And the right half. Yeah, and then merge in the middle. Like, yep. can't think of a good analogy, but... You're weaving them together. Yeah. Except that you won't... It's not like a lace-up, fancy lady, make it pirate but sexy top. Because <laughs> <laughs> it will all close together. I am not that kind of pirate lady. You knit cables along both edges, and then you make I-cords 
and I somehow we're going to weave it all together. I am still questioning my amount of yarn, but that is that is my own fault. That is um, the nature of knitting, isn't it? A little bit. I mean, yeah. I I did look at it and say, oh, this calls for 980 yards. Oh, I have 980 yards. <laughs> so we shall see how this works out. But I think I'm pretty much getting gauge. Actually, what was I getting? My swatch, I was getting row gauge, but not stitch gauge, which was kind of fine because it, it called for a, like 10 inches of positive ease and I didn't really feel oh, that my. I needed quite that much. So if no. I was going to be, you know, an inch or two off in width, that was okay. So I think we're going to be all right. And again, I have, I have plans in the back of my head if I need more yarn, but hopefully I won't. But then I do have my secret project that I didn't talk about last time, but I have given it as a gift now so I can talk about it. And that is the Hipster Cowl by Hohi Locatelli. Apparently this knitting section is brought to you by Hohi Locatelli. That would be nice. Right. <laughs> so this is yarn that uh, my husband had bought in New York, Rosie's Color Yarns DK and the colorway Topaz, which is this beautiful yellow. It's like an ochre. It's really warm. And there's a little oh, bit of shimmer in there. Rich. I'm not sure why. It's like golden fields. It was so yes. beautiful. Yeah, it was gorgeous. It will look Come amazing on. on my friend. So I made it for her birthday. And the hipster cowl is an infinity scarf or cowl, I guess. So a long looping circle that you can then double up. There's a garter stitch portion and then that same funky cable-y it looks thing like that was in giant my... x's all yeah. the way across and it's the same one that was in my atlantic heart shawl it's in... except bigger it's in my west knits mm. last fall yeah i don't know what the stitch is called but it's very fun to do very cool and then there's also a little bit of textured pattern in there um, and it kind of alternates so it was really fun to do because you were, you know, you just knit for a little while and then you get to do something fun and then you go back to the relaxing part and then you sew up the ends and then you make fringe, so much fringe, which was also really fun because I don't think I've ever put fringe on any of my knitting. So that was very enjoyable and I was really pleased with how it turned out and I think she liked it. It looked like something straight out of anthropology. Oh, thanks. Great color, awesome pattern, perfect. The only change I made, because my yarn, I thought I was going to have a little bit less than what was called for. And it made a really super wide cowl. So I cut off a couple of pattern repeats, I think maybe one or two, and it's still plenty big. I did end up having some yarn left over, which was fine, but not that much, which was ideal. So yeah, so that is my knitting. Hooray! It's been fun. I'll have to focus on something and <laughs> stop the madness. How about you? Over on the easel, I have had some struggles I was so excited talking away about this series that I thought I was dreaming up and I had great sketches for it and I thought I was really gonna pull them together and I painted two pieces out of what I thought was going to be this nine piece series. It was excruciating. I don't know what happened, but it just got really difficult and I was fighting with placement and I was fighting with color. Both paintings are okay, but they when I look at them now, I just see, wow, they were so tight. My gauge on those paintings <laughs> was really, really off. And that is not an enjoyable way to paint. So I kind of had to regroup and I sat down and was thinking about just paint what you love. And I really love this will come as a total shock. I love to paint birds. Do you? I do. I had not heard that. Maybe once or twice I've mentioned it. And I also love to paint china, like cups and plates and that kind of thing. So I thought it would be really fun. And I am very aware because <laughs> we just got a card in the mail. Thank you, Jane, by the way. We feel very rich in... Um, stitch markers right now because we have received both of your notes and one of Jane's notes coincidentally features a print from Molly Hatch and in 2015 Molly Hatch had the good fortune to go over to the V&A gallery in London and paint a lot of their porcelain their fine porcelain collection 
And I knew that she had done these teacups from that collection and, of course, love her work. And I didn't realize that she had done the Potter's Mark, too. So I'm a little bit like, oh, however, Molly Hatch probably wasn't the first person to paint that. I am not the second and nor will I be the last. And it's okay to do what I want to do. So I am painting birds and breakables. It's not just teacups. It's all the china. Nice. And it's not just museum china. It's thrift store china and china in my cupboard and china in maybe Monica's and we'll see. I've got birds and breakables. I'm going to give Monica a sneak peek so that she can. This is the worst Aww. one. That one I'm going to redo, I but think. But it's adorable. I think there's a missing... The flower is too close to his nose. So these are different birds. And the china that they're paired with is sometimes it has a reason, sometimes not. And I just really love to get into the little details of the china. And I love the life and liveliness of the bird. I guess I'm worried. This is here's here's the real process side of it now. Or well, the the artist side of it is I'm worried that people will be like, oh, it's like boring, old, stuffy China. And in a way, yeah, if you're just looking at what it is, maybe it's not to everyone's taste. But I also think what's really interesting about fine China is where it came from and the hands that it took to create it. And then it's in your home and you're hand washing it because you can't put it in the dishwasher and you're handling it with care and you're pulling it out on special occasions. And it might've been your grandmother's china and it might be a fine teapot that you use for book group. It's the handmade side of it as much as it is the what's painted on it. And then I can go over to the Legion of Honor and look through their porcelain gallery and see this whole collection of really beautiful plates that someone collected for years and saved and kept safe, right? Mm -hmm. And then I can go to the thrift store on Valencia Street and find not the same, necessarily the same quality, but still beautiful hand-painted Limoges plate at the thrift store for $4.50. You know what I mean? And it's just this weird conundrum for me. Hmm. So when I started researching this, I also found a little piece about really fine porcelain being light as a feather. And that little phrase in a pottery book that I own is what sealed the deal with Birds and Breakables because... That was what they were trying to achieve was the most lightweight, strong, durable, lasting object, form and function that they could possibly create. And so now I'm obsessed with birds and thrift store china. And I'm having so much fun, except when I get into my brain about... Mm. Like, has this been done before? Should I be doing something different? And I'm always fighting that a little bit. And I don't ever talk about it out loud because it's that dark artist brain stuff sometimes that gets right. in the way of the process. That's what I'm that's what I'm working on. I have you know what took me weeks and weeks to paint those two pieces in the other series. Mm -hmm. I have painted seven pieces in 3 days for this series. So I feel like the momentum is there, my joy is there. I still have those little nagging thoughts, but I'm having a lot more fun with this. Excellent. Yeah, they're super fun. And the colors are great. And then there's so many little details and even just the lines. You can kind of like if you my little non-artist self is like, oh, look, his beak does that and the cup does that. And there's the bluebird with the little bluebird. And yeah, the colors are just great. And it's so it's fun. Yeah. Even when I think I have two really disparate things like um, a bird and a plate are not really they don't really have a whole lot in common. But then when I sit down and I'm using paint from the same palette, they end up talking to each other in a different way. The one that's on the easel right now that I didn't bring over that I had so much fun researching last night was I found these, how do you say, Mallorca dishes or it looks like Majolica. <laughs> and it's that Spanish, very colorful Spanish and French and Italian. It's a certain period of time. 
and I don't know a lot about it, but I found some oyster dishes and I was in bed looking at these beautiful, collectible, super colorful oyster dishes. And then I remembered that there's an oyster catcher bird. <laughs> like to serve oysters? Yeah. Oh, nice. So I can't wait to pair those two. And that's just funny and delightful in my own brain. And it's okay if nobody else gets as much joy out of it. I don't even particularly like oysters, but... And then, coincidentally, I got a commission to make a set of cards that have a teacup on them. I had painted several teacups in the past. I had them printed, and those are off to their new home, a whole set. That's a special thing that I don't normally offer, but yeah, that was exciting. That's fun. Sounds like good stuff. Yeah, we're just churning... And I clean the art room, which is like, oh. you know, you know, things are serious if I cleaned the art room. Yes. So on the table, I did want to let everyone know, I know you were worried, but we made it through the brownies in like three days. <laughs> so there, don't be alarmed. We are Thank still, goodness. still in good eating fashion. Tell yeah. the tale. Yep. We, we were a little worried about them, but we made it through and they are, they disappeared quite quickly. So we are, we are all set for the future. And then, as I said, I was, I was, had a weekend trip. And so my, my cooking has been less exciting. So I thought I would do a quick little review of a cookbook that I bought a while ago. And I haven't talked about too much, but I've made a ton of recipes out of it. And I, and I really like it a lot. And I just posted a picture of a recipe from it recently, or I guess it'll be a week ago now um, by the time you hear this, but it is I Dream of Dinner So You Don't Have To by Ali Slagle. And I think she's a food editor at the New York Times. And it has been a super great book. There's a lot of vegetarian options in there. There's a lot of meat options. There's a lot of good pictures. There's interesting flavors, but nothing too difficult to find in your average American non-specialized grocery store. Like you could go to Safeway and find most of the spices and whatnot, I think. Quick recipes, I mostly, I feel like they mostly take a half hour unless it's, you know, something that you're sticking in the oven and baking, but then you can walk away from it. So that's fine. Yeah. And interesting combinations and things that I can kind of, some of the things I can adapt and, you know, pull out the meat, cook it separately, but a lot of one pan dishes. So really good weeknight cooking with a little bit of adventure. One of them is called Children's Menu Enchiladas. So she's definitely, she's thinking, you know, with kids. Families, yeah. Yeah. Not, I mean, depending on how adventurous your your children are. Like the harissa creamed cauliflower might not go over in all households. My people really like this one. Super simple, very few ingredients, cauliflower, heavy cream, tomatoes, harissa paste. I mean, and then you just kind of braise it and it was delicious. And you can vary the amount of harissa depending on how spicy you like what it. Is, what is harissa? What is the flavor profile of it? Because like I am a, not familiar with oh, it Oh, it's Moroccan, I believe, like a chili tomato kind of paste. Okay. I've seen spice blends with it. You can get the paste in those tubes where I found it. You can probably get it in a jar somewhere. Is harissa a pepper? Possibly. You Just always curious. ask these questions. <laughs> I need to start looking things up. I had it for the first time in France, of all places, which is why I'm thinking Morocco, because they have some connections. And it's just one of those flavorful things that you can add. So this was this was really tasty and easy. The family really liked this. And then the one that I had just posted the photo of is coconut curry with swirled eggs, which she said was kind of like a soup. It had a lot of rice in it. You cook the rice separately and then serve it with. So it felt less soupy and more, I guess, like a curry. You throw some spinach in at the end and some eggs, and then you, you stir around so that the eggs get all swirled. So there's not a lot of chunkiness in it except for the rice. Oh, and it was a green curry and coconut milk broth. The other thing I like about it is that she usually has, at the end of each recipe, three or four options for things to swap out just to give you other ideas. So like for the coconut curry, she said, you know, you can add sweet potatoes to it as well, or, you know, add some chicken at this point. So just ways to, to change it up. The one thing that I'm sort of struggling with, so there's the recipe... And there's the ingredients, and she just has the words for the ingredients, not the amount. So coconut milk, green curry, rice, eggs, and then you go into the recipe to find the amounts, which is sort of annoying if you're, you know, trying to do a shopping list. But it's also 
like, okay, do I have these things? What can I sub out? Not entirely sure how I feel about that part, but the rest of it is delightful and I am enjoying it for that. And then the one I made last night, which was a turmeric dill rice and chickpeas. You cook the rice and the chickpeas together. And then she says, and while they're cooking, saute the onions and let them just let them sit until your rice is done, which is fantastic. This is not time sensitive. I'm not going to tell you cook them for 10 minutes. You know, it's just do this, start this while this is happening, then go do this and then combine everything. So I like that writing style. Dash made one of the recipes over the summer, the sausage and gnocchi, which (laughs) she describes as meat and potatoes for the spontaneous and unprepared. (laughs) It's just sausage and gnocchi, obviously, and then pepperoncini and arugula. And you kind of cook it all or you cook at least the sausage and the gnocchi in a pan and then combine it with the peppers and the arugula is kind of a salad and spicy and tasty and you know your 16 year old can make it without too much instruction so that one was fun this is also a good reminder that it is proper gnocchi season right now yeah like it's risotto gnocchi season in my brain this is true and then the other one i made recently there was chicken dill patties which were they were pretty tasty i think maybe i squished them too much so they were a little bit dry but that's more of a me but the flavor was cool but you serve them with a zucchini salad where you broil the zucchini and then you mix it in with a red onion that's been soaking in, I think, red wine vinegar. That was super tasty and I really enjoyed that very much. And I think even my non-zucchini people were like, this is okay, <laughs> which is all you can ask for. So there, there have been several. There's a whole seafood section. There's a lot of really good, easy recipes that are tasty and just a little bit exciting. So I would recommend checking out I Dream of Dinner by Ali Slagle. Great. What's been on your table? We had a dinner party. Oh, fun. Yeah. That's kind of how you know we're creeping our way out of COVID, I guess. You know, during COVID, our boys had, we hired a young man to do some wrestling with them at the house. And we've become really good friends with him and his parents came out to visit. And so we had them up to the house for dinner and I made a big roasted salmon with olive butter. It's got some fancy name, but it's basically olives and butter. It's like a compound butter with shallots and parsley. And I usually do like three times as many olives and half the butter. I really love that Kalamata flavor and it goes great on the salmon. I also made Palm's Anna, which is that very simple French potato dish, which is, it's basically butter lasagna (laughs) with potatoes. I didn't realize this was such a butter heavy menu until I was cooking it and I was like, oh gosh, this is is really rich. I did make a gigantic salad to go with it and some Harcovert. The whole thing was kind of French, if you ask me. But the Palm's Anna is, I used the mandolin, sliced them really, really thin, and just brushed butter in between the layers like baklava (laughs) and cooked them in the cast iron in the oven and it was lovely. I also made a chicken chili and I remember making this at some point last year where you add in... This was not for the dinner party. This is not for the dinner party. It's the recipe where you add in just a little bit of cream cheese with the white beans and you emulsify those two together so when you pour it in it's like a thickener and a cream and depth of flavor all at once really wonderful chicken chili the only thing that i had forgotten to add to it while it was cooking was a bit of heat but i found this yuzu hot sauce at trader joe's and because it's citrus based or citrusy we added that to the top of the chicken chili, like in the bowl to taste. And it was a wonderful addition, really bright, but spicy, perfect for the chicken, the white chili. I also made a catastrophe of some half-baked harvest pumpkin bars. So it's, you know, fall and it feels like you're required to make at least one pumpkin thing. And so I made these pumpkin bars that I thought would be really good. And I messed them up six ways to Sunday. It's kind of like the blondies from 100 Cookies where you melt everything and then add it to the dry ingredients. But in my haste, 
I didn't let the melted butter cool down enough mm. and added it in and it cooked the egg. Oh no. <laughs> cooked the egg white a little bit. So I put it through the strainer and strained out the egg whites <laughs> to save it, which worked, except they were a little dry. And because I was so foiled by scrambling some eggs in these bars, I forgot to add the chocolate chips, oh, the no. the vanilla, the white chocolate chips. So they were missing that. So I thought, well, I'll add it on top when I yeah. do the glaze. But they were, okay, so I pulled too much egg out, so they were a little dry. And then I forgot to add the chocolate chips, so they were a little bit not sweet. <laughs> they were edible, but they didn't get devoured like most mm. of the stuff that I make. So I get a C- minus for those for sure. And then to redeem myself, a couple days later, I made empanadas from scratch. Wow. They were really, really good. Although, even though I doubled the batch for the dough, I probably made four times too much filling. And it is... I don't know what to do with it. It's still in the fridge. Can you freeze it and then save it for... Possibly. I did like a spicy potato and turkey mixture with peas. It's so good. I can just like eat it in a bowl. If you made an empanada, you could freeze the empanada, so couldn't you? Yeah. I could also just make some tacos with it tonight. I mean, yeah. yeah. And then I made an apple crisp mm. from The Joy of Cooking. Classic, classic recipe. I think I sliced the apples a little too thin because it was like scant apples and lots mm. of crumb topping no one complained mm. it was gone in a minute yeah and it was beautiful with vanilla ice cream and to paul hollywood's credit it was very autumnal yes i was thinking because i do still need to do one more great british bake-off recipe for my threes the apple cakes were feeling pretty inspiring the apple cakes were beautiful. Yeah. Not Halloween, but beautiful and delicious right. looking. I love, love apple fritters, but they're terrible mm. for you. You know, they're like yeah. deep fried amazingness. Yeah. But yeah. the one that was in the beautiful bunt pan, and then he covered it with something, so you missed the beautiful... The skull. Was it a skull? The sugar skull. Okay. I was thinking that hanging. He also did hanging skulls. Okay. Sorry. Which was amazing, by the way. That was really cool. Totally cool. I definitely want to make that apple bundt cake today. What what apples do you use when you're baking? I usually have, I mean, if the recipe calls for something specific, then I might try and get that. I usually have gala hanging around my house. So that's what I'm going to use. But yeah, I feel like you usually want something with a little more flavor and zip. I did the apple crisp with honey crisp. And I think they were a little too sweet. Hmm. It would have benefited from Granny Smith. A, some Granny Smith yeah. mixed in. I just, I don't know the apples out here yet. <laughs> You've only been here 20 years. Yeah, but it's still. It's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. I'm always Googling in the grocery store, which is the best apple yeah. for baking. That is a good. I mean, I think it depends what you're doing. Baking. Right? <laughs> well. Oh, like baking, baking. Yeah, but again, I think, yeah, like in a cake would be different from a crisp, probably, right? Like the flavor, what you want to emphasize kind of thing. Yeah. This is going to require some more research. Obviously. Yeah. I'll report back. Me too. All right. On the nightstand. Yes. Lots of reading. So many good books. As I said last time, I was reading The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell, and I finished it because it's amazing. Courtney talked about this two episodes ago, I think. So Stellar. good. We both loved Hamnet. We both loved this one. It's historical fiction. It is the story of Lucretia de' Medici, who in 1560 was married off. Oh, married good. off is a very apt. Yeah. To the Duke of Ferrara, dies a few, uh, less than a year later. I mean, it's history. I'm not really spoiling anything here. The book starts off a few days before she dies and goes back and forth between her current time and her whole life, starting with her conception. It goes back and forth. So you get the whole whole span of her 16 years. It's very similar in tone to Hamnet, I thought, that kind of dreamy. It's not exactly an internal monologue, but that first person vision, lots of details. You're really just immersed in that world. 
I don't I don't know how actually accurate it is, but it feels really it accurate feels to the fifteen. And the atmosphere is yeah. like you get a sense that life at even though they're not royal, life at court Basically or are. their their fancy pants lifestyle, what it's yeah, I don't know how she captures that so well. Yeah. That atmosphere, but also the impending tragedy, I think, is similar in both of them. You know something bad's going to happen. And it happened. It's history. You know it's not going to change, but you really think maybe this time it will. It was just beautiful, beautiful book. I read. Her writing yeah. is just impeccable. And I know you read her I, memoir and you didn't like it. I did not Have you like read any of her other stuff? No. And I want. I loved the marriage portrait so much that I was just taking a little bit of a break. And I did order one of her other pieces. Oh, okay. I'll be interested coming. to hear yeah. how that was. And then I have two books from series. Uh, Be the Serpent by Seanan McGuire is the first one. This is the 16th book in the October Day series. <sighs> this was super interesting because if you've been with us for a while, you might remember I binged the first 15 books last fall. And book 15 came out a year ago. So I had to wait a whole year for this one. So that was interesting. Your patience is of, astounding. <laughs> I mean, it's like with Louise Penny now, right? which the new one is coming out soon. I know. Very exciting. So it was really interesting because the other ones, you know, I just blew through them all. I knew all the characters. I was immersed in that world. And this one, I finally appreciated all the little exposition she does around her characters because it's been a year and I haven't forgotten the characters and I kind of knew what happened in the last book. I remembered like the big picture thing, but some of the details had kind of slipped my mind. So it was really helpful. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were doing that. They were doing that. So I do think that you could jump into this series in any spot. There's kind of an adventure in each book and then a through line through all the books. But she gives you enough information about the characters. Like Joe shows up and she's like, this is Joe. He's Bob's cousin and he's married to Beth. And had an affair with Steve, you know, and so you get the all the information that you need to go forward with this character without bogging you down in a lot of details. So like the Louise Penny books, you could read any given one, and you're not going to get all of the depth of emotion that you would if you've read all of the books, but I could also see not wanting to read all 16 books. Maybe just start with 16. However, this one was really exciting because every four books in this series is a big revelation that Shannon has been preparing for years. She claims to have this whole thing mapped out for a while. And I kind of believe her because you can go back to some of the other books and see where she's starting to set things up, like multiple, multiple books back, not just one or two. So this one was really good. So this is urban fantasy, October, Toby Day is our heroine. She is a changeling, half fairy, half human, not a good place to be. She tried to back away from the fairy world after a traumatic experience and it didn't work. She is now a hero of the realm to the queen of the Summerlands. Anyway, the queen of California, basically. And she has gathered in the course of these 16 books, a whole bunch of friends and allies. And in the last book, she got a husband, which was wonderful. And so this one... Some bad stuff happens. Things are changed. Secrets are revealed. It's fantastic. It was really great. Now I have to wait another year. Oh, well. But it's very exciting. The other book in a series is Ruby Fever by Ilana Andrews. This is the third book in the second trilogy about the Baylor sisters. There was a trilogy about the oldest sister. Now there's a trilogy about the second. I assume we will eventually be seeing a trilogy about the third sister. Who knows? So this is, I guess it's another urban fantasy. These sisters live in a world where in the 1800s, a serum was invented. And if you took it, your magical powers would develop, which obviously led to all sorts of problems. So now the magical world is kind of regulated. There's powerful magical families. And depending on how rare or useful your powers are, depends on your status. So the sisters and their mom and grandma and two cousins live in Houston, and they were kind of flying under the radar, didn't seem to have a great deal of power. Then the oldest sister gets involved with one of the super powerful magicians, and it turns out the girls are actually really super amazingly powerful and from very powerful families, and they are now top of the food chain and struggling with that. The second sister is now in charge. The older one got married and moved away, which everyone's like, cool, cool. So then her trilogy is about her struggles. Oh, this is the one th with the Italian count, who's a very powerful magician. Why are you chuckling? His name is Alessandro Sagrado. 
just makes me laugh. <laughs> the first series I felt was a little more romancy. This one, they kind of meet in the first one and there's a few little struggles. But then by the second book, they're just like, yeah, we're together. It's a husband and wife who write these books. And they, it felt like in this one a little bit, they were trying to make some drama in between them, but there wasn't really. It was just basically like watching a Marvel movie or any sort of action adventure, which is kind of fun because there's lots of strong female characters and they get to blow stuff up too. Less less actual interesting plot going on in this one and just lots of blowing things up in crazy magical ways. But it's amusing. It's funny too. They're amusing books. They have some other series as well that I think are similar, which I might have to go check out since who knows when the next one in this series will come out. Then I read Why We Swim by Bonnie Tsu, who is a local author, and this is nonfiction. Read it from my book club. And it is, I mean, it's about why we swim. Uh, She is a lifelong swimmer, surfer, you know, all the water things. And she has written other things. So she just, I guess, wanted to look into swimming. Her parents met at a pool. So it's been a big thing for her family. It's one of those part memoir, part interesting stories about swimmers. So like an Icelandic fisherman whose ship goes down and he's the only one who survives because he swims across the sea for three hours and makes it to land. And doesn't have hypothermia because he has, you know, that cold water body. So interesting stories like that. It was interesting, but not perhaps deeply. Not a lot to talk about. Yeah. And I mean, we had a good discussion. I think we were all hoping for something more profound. Yeah. And there wasn't a great deal of that. But it was interesting. I see lots of great stuff about the benefits of cold water swimming, that ocean, the open or wild swimming or whatever. Yeah. Were it not for sharks <laughs> or like strong currents. You or can't. Or sea really... lions. Yeah, that too. Even in, Even in the aquatic bay. park. Yeah. Yeah. And she talks to someone who is one of the members of the club and she's done some swimming there as well. So it's, you know, so again, very interesting. And there were several of us who were not swimmers, myself included, who came out of reading the book thinking, oh, I really should do more swimming. That would be good. It's hard. I mean, we're surrounded by water, but it is hard to find a safe spot to go and do that if you're not a really strong swimmer because yeah. up and down the coast is really fierce currents. Yeah. The bay also has pretty strong currents and there's and it's really sea cold. life and it's really cold. Yeah. Yeah. But I have a huge desire to do it. I just don't feel like there's a, I don't I haven't found the right spot, I guess. So again, interesting. I feel like if I found that book in a vacation rental and I needed something to read, I, that would be an enjoyable yeah. quick read, but not something I needed to, to search out. What was really good, actually, my, my final three books, all really good. Stories from the Tenants Downstairs by Sadiq Fofana. A pretty short book, six or seven stories that are all about tenants in this one building in Harlem. Not a well-kept-up building. And the management has just changed. So the new management is trying to gentrify the building. So you get stories of each of the tenants. You feel increasing levels of sympathy and sadness towards them. And they all interconnect. I think they each tell their stories in first person. So it was really well-written. It's just really beautiful just people making choices, not even like good or bad choices, just, you know, you just you have to choose certain things at certain times. And we all just choose things sometimes because it's easy or, you know, it was and then there's things that that happen and or things that you don't have power over. And it was just it was a really beautiful book. And I I enjoyed that a lot. It's it's one of those books where you're like, can I say I enjoyed this? It was really sad. And then The Unseen World by Liz Moore. Ada is the daughter of a single father. He is a AI researcher at the Boston Institute of Technology. I assume it's supposed to be MIT in the mid 80s. And he starts to develop early onset Alzheimer's. And so oh, the story. I hate these stories. It was actually really good. I mean, it They're was hard. So hard. It was really hard. But she has people around her. And so the story is her support and what she's going through. But it also. As she's going through all of this, it turns out maybe her father is not who he said he was. So they're kind of... so there's Dementia with a twist. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So that's it kind of, it goes forward to grown-up Ada. It goes backwards to her father. And, you know, you eventually, they do research and you do eventually find out his secrets. And it's heartbreaking and beautiful. There's just a lot of layers. It takes place outside of Boston. So that was kind of fun. Yeah. 
So it was it was a really good book. And it was older than I thought. I think it came out in like 2016 or something. So so that was kind of interesting as well. And then it's a kid in the 80s. So I was like, yes, I understand all this. This is my life. So that, that part was really good. So I would I would recommend that one very much. And then Shrines of Gaiety by Kate Atkinson, the genius. So good. Yeah, I had 100 pages left last night and I got up early to to make sure I could finish it because... I just wanted, I wanted to see what was going to happen because she's so good. So it takes place in 1926 in London and focuses on a bunch of characters all swirling around uh, this nightclub owner, Nellie Coker. She has six kids and she's based on an actual person that Kate talks about her notes at the end. And then there's, there's uh, some girls from Yorkshire who have run away to the city and there's a police officer who's been transferred to the local station to clean up the corruption and there's a librarian, yay, from Yorkshire who has come down to look for the girls and gets mixed up in all of this. It ended up reminding me a little of her Jackson Brody novels Mm -hmm. with the addition of the Roaring Twenties and these people who were still traumatized by the war. But that kind of like all of these characters and there's a mystery, but not really because as the reader, you know where people are, but then she takes them away and you're not sure what has happened. And at the end, it just all, all this stuff starts happening and so good. It's just, and it was a big book. It's almost 400 pages. Yeah, she's not, she's never brief. No, but it didn't feel like she hadn't been edited. Mm, Like sometimes they get big and you're like, "Ah, we could have cut some stuff. I just enjoyed every minute of it. That was delightful. That's up and coming for me too. Yeah. Oh, I finally got one in first. (laughs) (laughs) How about you? I have a short, a short stack for you today. I read The Final Case by David Gutterson. I had read Snow Falling on Cedars like within the past couple years. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's it. Okay. And so this caught my eye. Is it new or? I think so. Okay. The structure of it was a little different. It feels like he's telling a memoir because his main character is a fiction writer and it feels very first person. It's always confusing when authors do that. Yeah, it. It was really confusing, and for a long, I don't know, a huge chunk of it, I thought it felt memoirish, in a good way, really compelling. So this is the story of an of a fiction author who hasn't really written any fiction. He thinks he's in retirement, in a way. Not by choice, but he's just sort of fallen into it. And his father is an attorney. And his father has done a fair bit of pro bono work in in his career, and he gets called to take on this case. And his father is elderly. The, the main character, the author, has to help his father get up to the courthouse because he can't, he's damaged his car because he's elderly. <laughs> and so he becomes this witness to how the case is unfolding. And his father needs him to help out and drive him around. And so he is doing some of the research for his father and also just being there with his father. So there's this relationship stuff happening, beautiful father-son relationship stuff happening in contrast to what the case is about. And the case is the story of a family, a fundamental very religious family who's adopted a child from Ethiopia. Because of their fundamental religious beliefs, they, to me, it would be child abuse, like hands down, the way that they treat this child. And in a court of law, it gets really complicated because it falls under their religious beliefs. And so the the lawyer has to argue on behalf of this mother who abused, starved, punished in horrible ways this child and whether or not it met the criteria for that case. I mean, it's just terrible stuff. So seeing the the father-son relationship in contrast to this adoptive relationship, then the storytelling structure of it all, it was just kind of riveting the whole thing. And I wanted to know, I was with it through the end and just very interested in the whole story. I think his storytelling device made it feel, because it felt like a memoir, it made it all feel very real. Mm. 
and kind of scary. Not a fun book, but very well written. Then I read Hester by Lori Lico Albanese. That's on my list. Is so it good? fun. Uh, excellent. Okay. That was loud. Sorry. <laughs> so this is the fictional account of Nathaniel Hawthorne's life and inspiration for his character, Hester Prine, who is the capital A adulteress in The Scarlet Letter. I nailed that. (laughs) (laughs) So Hester Prine is a fictional character based on our main character, Isabel Gamble. Okay, let's just lay out her interesting bits and pieces. She is originally from England. She comes from a long line of well-known witches. Sorry, is this real or? This is real. Okay. Because her ancestor, Isabel Gamble, because they were named like Isabel and Marguerite or something like Mm. that, alternating or something. In historical documents, Isabel Gamble was hanged for witchcraft and that it aligns with that being her grandmother. In the lineage, what makes this line of women witches is that they are synesthes. They have that synesthesia. Oh, yeah. So in like when you say different words, like Monday or Tuesday, they see different colors. And it manifests itself in their stitchery when they were embroidering. And so when she was learning her letters and her mother would say A, A is for apple. And in Isabel Gamble, like the character in the book, in her brain, A is red. And so she stitches a red A. And her mother freaks out because she knows that lineage. And so she tells her, your your stitches need to be all black work, no color. You know, she tries to muffle this, this instinct in, the, in Isabel's to keep her safe. And so the story unfolds. She makes her way to America with an older man who is her husband. He's got a whole separate story and trajectory. And she is left in this town to kind of fend for herself. And she uses her embroidery skills to support herself. And when she lets her impulses take over, the result is this incredibly beautiful artwork, stitch work. And it is that part of it is so fun for me. It's been a couple years since I read The Scarlet Letter, and I sort of want to revisit it just for fun. (laughs) That can be said. I love how she painted Nathaniel Hawthorne in this book. There's a lot going on and I don't want to spoil it for you either because if it's coming up for you, it's truly delightful and I think you'll have fun with it. Oh good. I was not expecting delight and fun. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Cool. It is kind of. Okay. Yeah, I only had two books this week huh. because that's I've okay. been busy painting birds and teapots. Yeah, see, I was doing lots of reading and not knitting. These things happen. Yeah. But I mean, it's okay. fall. Like, I, I feel like I should want to be knitting. I do. I just can't decide what to knit. Socks. I'm going to work on my socks. That's what I'm going to do. Okay. Because you just need to do what you love. Every day. Every day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, at C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.